Okay, if we could get it down, we will start as soon as possible. Morning. Morning, morning. How many of you looked up Josie Flicks? Well, for those of you who didn't, don't forget. Okay, <laughs> this morning we're going to look at some of the, the biggest objections you will encounter in your witnessing. Uh, the first thing I would suggest when someone poses an objection, you need to ask some questions to see why he's asking the questions. Because some people are asking questions not really wanting to know an answer to the objection. They're just wanting to be obstinate or just wanting to stump you. Proverbs tells us in two verses side by side what seems like a contradictory message. On the first it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. But then it also says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. So we need to discern the difference between, before we jump into an answer to this objection, we want to try to figure out, do you really want to know an answer to this, or are you just trying to stun me? John Stott put it very well. He said, we can't pander to a man's intellectual arrogance, but we do need to cater to his intellectual honesty. So in other words, if someone is just trying to be bullheaded and really doesn't want to know, don't waste your breath on him. Make sure he really wants to know. But at the same time, if someone has a genuine objection, an honest, answer, an honest question, don't just say, you just got to have faith. Because God really does value the mind. He created us. He says, let us reason together. God wants to be there to answer a question. Some questions you could ask to kind of discern are, why are, you bringing these up, why are you bringing up these objections? If I give you an answer to this question, would you be more willing to consider Christianity? What's the biggest issue that prevents you from being a Christian? Are you, are you willing to read something that I think answers your question? Do you really want to know an answer? Are you just trying to prove Christianity false? A lot of times when people ask these objections, they're asking very tough, complex questions, but they don't really have the time, they don't give you the time to answer them. So if, if you start, I mean, some of these are really complex issues and they require listening. And if you sense that the person isn't listening, because oftentimes they'll throw out one objection, you'll start to answer it, they'll interrupt you and just jump to the next one. But be honest with them that this is a complex issue. I'll do my best to explain it to you. I also have some resources I can give you. If you really want to know, there are answers. <clears throat> Something else to keep in mind, too. I, I love a terrific story that R.C. Sproul tells about a time when he was in seminary school. And one of his professors was asking him to defeat the Mormon idea that God has a body. So R.C. Sproul started with John 4.24 that says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the professor said, no, 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 that, that will never do. So R.C. Sproul was puzzled, and he, he tried to find some other scripture verses, and he just kept 
coming up a wall against a wall with his professor. Finally, R.C. Sproul gave up, and the professor <coughs> stood before the class and said, class, the key verse in disproving the Mormon idea that God has a body is John 4.24. And R.C. Sproul protested, what? That's the verse I used. He said, yeah, my objection was no, no, my rebuttal was no, no, that will never do. What kind of an argument is that? And R.C. Sproul never forgot that just because someone says no, 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 that will never do, that is not a rebuttal. That is not an argument. Don't let someone who's dealing with these issues get away with just dismissal. Uh, something else to keep in mind is that just because someone is not convinced by an argument, it does not mean that it's not a good argument. I found myself getting into this where I start feeling frustrated that this argument, I mean sometimes I just haven't told the argument compellingly enough or clear enough. But sometimes it's a good solid argument and it's not convincing that person and I start doubting the strength of the argument. But just because someone refuses to acknowledge something or refuses to open their eyes does not mean it's not a solid argument. Don't start doubting the truth of what you believe just because it isn't convincing someone. Take a step back and evaluate the argument. Is it a good argument? If someone is refusing to open their eyes, you cannot prove different things in this room. A person has to want to know the truth. And that's the thing you have to remember. Humans have a tremendous ability to deceive themselves and that when they do not want to know the truth, no amount of good reasoning will convince them. And this is why all of our witnessing encounters need to be bathed in prayer and this humble acknowledgement that only God can open a person's eyes and only God can change a person's heart. Um, boy, we're really going to be covering a lot. I've got eight objections in this talk. We touched on a couple of them yesterday. I really think we could spend a whole week on these objections and there's a bunch of tremendous resources that go into much more depth. What I've tried to do with this talk is kind of boil these issues down to a strategy to use. Because in conversation, you don't have time for 15, 20 minute lectures. You just, so these are strategies. I've tried to boil these responses down that you can get in a lot of really great books into some conversational strategies. But the first one is, the first objection is I don't believe in God. Like what I asked earlier, first of all, ask what kind of a God he doesn't believe in. Ask what kind of, how he perceives God. <clears throat> Another thing that you need to ask someone who doesn't believe in God is ask where the first living cell came from. Because the evolutionist, the naturalistic Darwinian evolutionist, has a fairy tale that they believe about how life came from simple orgasms, organisms <coughs> that kept... <laughs> wipe that from your mind. <laughs> Simple organisms <laughs> that continue to multiply and reproduce. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so in the Darwinian, there's these self replicating organisms that keep getting more and more complex as they r randomly mutate. The problem with that story is that the first self-replicating cell 
is in incredibly complex. See, the, if the evolutionist paints this story as, you know, it was just one plus one equals two, two plus two equals four, and the complexity just keeps growing until we have these incredibly complex creatures. The problem is we don't start out at one. We don't start at something so simple. The first cell that can reproduce is so incredibly complex. There is so much information in that cell. Uh, you familiar with what information is? Information is an idea. For example, this paper has wood and ink and paper. But there's also, an I there's also ideas that are communicated by these verbal codes. That idea, that immaterial part of it is information. When you have a blueprint, you don't just have the, the paper there and the, the line, intersecting lines. You also have the idea. And that's a mind puts the information down in code and another mind receives it. Information is an immaterial part of life that involves sending and encoding messages and then decoding them. Now there is information in the cell, which is, I think is one of the strongest arguments for God's existence. Because information only ever comes from a mind. The information in our DNA is absolutely mind-boggling, that in one cell there's something like dozens of encyclopedia worth of information in that one cell, that you realize in just one of your cells there's the entire blueprint for your body, for the, your height, for your eye color, for, and what's amazing is in each one of these cells, as they reproduce, they know how to become either hair cells or eye cells or skin cells, and they all go get fit together incredibly. That in each one of those cells is an incredibly complex blueprint for our body. And this is what's so amazing about that first cell, and this is why evolution cannot get off the ground, is because nobody knows where that first complex cell could have come from. Anthony Flew was a, a famous atheist for years. He actually debated C.S. Lewis. But recently, I think within the last eight years, because of that one principle, where did the first life come from? He honestly evaluated the question, where did that first life come from? And he realized that that first life that was able to reproduce was so incredibly complex that there had to be an intelligent designer. Overwhelming evidence. I mean, it just goes on and on. But simplify it down. And Another thing I want to suggest from a tactical standpoint is do not get into the age of the earth with a non-believer. I'm not saying it's not important. It's very important that we interpret Genesis literally, the way the author intended it to. But the problem is, is that God created this world with the appearance of age. So it looks old. But the issue that we want to get to a, into a believer's mind it's not that the earth is only six to 10,000 years old. The important issue is whether there is a God who created or not. We, we want to attack his worldview that, he, I mean, he needs to adopt a theistic worldview that allows for the possibility of miracles. That's our goal. We're not just trying to convince someone. See, if you are spending time arguing for a 6,000 year, year old earth, Satan's really going to use that to distract. Because it doesn't matter for this sake, for the, at this point in the person's spiritual journey, how old the earth is. It matters, is there a God who created it or not? So you can use 
their numbers, their scientific evidence, their data to show that there's a God. The age of the earth comes after. Once a person has accepted Christ to be their savior, then that's an issue of discipleship and accepting the, the Bible's full authority. But first of all, we want to bring them to Christ. So I hope you understand that. I'm not minimizing the issue of the age of the earth. I'm just talking about it from a strategy standpoint. Just try to establish, first of all, that there is a God. Uh, also, ask if there's anything truly wrong. Truly think, any, if there's anything that is truly evil in this world. And now most non-believers have their pet peeves. They can't, it, like, to them, televangelists truly are evil. People who bash homosexuals truly are evil. And you need to ask them and get them to think about this. What do you mean by evil? Are you just saying that you have a distaste for these things, just like I don't like sushi or I don't like whatever? <laughs> or are you saying that there is an there's actual obligation in this world, that this world truly isn't the way it should be? Where did that come from and how do you account for it? Because after wrestling with this from so many different angles, and I encourage you to continue to wrestle with this, I've really come to the conclusion that if there is just one thing that is truly evil, one thing that is truly wrong, there has to be an absolute personal God giving us that moral obligation. Conversely, if there is no God, if this world is all there is, nothing is truly evil. Morality is nothing more than taste. All we have is a description of the way things are we have no prescription for the way things ought to be if there is no God. Dostoevsky nailed it. He said, if there is no God, all things are permissible. There's no enforcement. There's no accountability. There's no judgment day. All we are left with is personal taste. An atheist objects and say, oh, I have morality. My system of, of morality is, is based on empathy and, and doing what I would want for other people. Okay, that's, that's a description of how you might be able to construct morality according to your tastes, but the issue here is not whether you can come up with the morality in your mind. The issue is, is there any real moral obligation in the world? If there's a God, there is. If there isn't a God, there isn't. And I don't know anybody who can truly live with the idea that there is no moral obligation. Okay, the second objection, how can there be a God when there's so much evil? In the world. When I was going through that time of doubt or whenever I've read atheist writings, this is pretty much the number one objection for why they do not believe there could be a good and loving God. Uh, the argument's been stated many different ways, but a simple way it's been stated is, if God was all loving, he would want to eradicate evil. If God was all powerful, he'd be able to eradicate evil. Evil exists, therefore God is either lacking in his existence, or he's lacking in his power, or he's lacking in his love. But according to the atheist argument, there is no way that you could have an all-powerful, all-good God and evil in the world. Pretty tough objection. Um, in that book, The Brothers Karamazov, where Dostoevsky makes that point that if if there's no God, all things are permissible. 
There's one of the strongest arguments against the existence of God given by one of the Karamazov brothers, whose, whose name is Ivan. And he talks about all the evil that he's seen and the story of this girl who was abused by a pastor and his wife. And they beat on this girl. They would uh, burn her fingers. They would rip her fingernails off. They would stuff her mouth with excrement. They would lock her in an outhouse during the winter and let her freeze and just let her suffer. And Ivan asks his sensitive brother about this, because his, his other brother, who was trained to become a priest, believed in God. But he said, I know you guys say that God, is God has a, a purpose in evil. But let me ask you that if you could eradicate the world's evil, but it, you had to put that girl through that hell on earth, would you do it? And Aloysia, his brother, said, no, he couldn't. And it is a really tough thing to, to ponder. Why did God create when it caused all of this suffering? There's, there's no easy way around this objection, but there's definitely some things you need to consider. The first one is, does evil exist? Because really, the atheist has nothing to complain about. The world is just the way it is. There's, he's got nothing to point to that says things should not be this way. I mean, just when that's the problem when you have things happening by chance, is they're going to happen the way they happen. You can't say they shouldn't have happened that way. You can't throw Scrabble pieces on the ground and say, well, those were immoral Scrabble pieces. They just happened the way they were going to fall. And if all this world is uh, shaking random molecules in motion, there is no prescription for the way things ought to be. It's just the way things are. There's no use complaining about it. But as soon as you say things should not be this way, you have to provide a justifiable standard where do you get that idea? Where do you get this idea that some things ought not to be this way? That is the first issue. Does evil really exist? Once you've established that evil exists, you need to also establish that evil is not a thing. Evil exists as a standard, as a description, but evil is not a thing. The argument goes that <laughs> Or the, the objection is that God created evil. But did God create evil? What is evil? Is this hand evil? This is a good hand that can change diapers, cook a delicious meal. The same hand, although it's extremely unlikely, could take a dagger and stab as many of you as I could catch. Suddenly, is this hand a good hand or an evil hand? What wouldn't, if it stabs you, it becomes an evil hand. Has, the, has the, the physical makeup of the hand changed? No. What made it an evil hand? What turned this from a good hand into an evil hand? My choice. See, evil is not a thing. Evil is a description 
of a deprivation or a lack of goodness. Evil came about by choice. Now, why did God create choice? We don't know for sure. We can speculate. I really don't think things like love or even the enjoyment would be possible without freedom. I know in life we choose a real-life person with all their free will and their mistakes over someone who's fake. Have you ever seen the Mr. Wonderful doll? <laughs> you pull him, you squeeze him, and he says exactly what every female wants to say. He asks for directions, he asks for her mother to stay an extra couple weeks, he takes out the garbage and he just wants to cuddle. That's the Mr. <laughs> the Mr. Wonderful doll. And yet, I don't know a single woman who would choose that automatic Mr. Wonderful doll over a real doll because when you, you pull that string and the doll says, I love you, you could pull it all evening and you would not feel any more loved because that doll has no choice. God could have created us robots, but then love would have been absolutely meaningless. And I really think our enjoyment, I really think that even our ability to enjoy things is directly related to our choice. And you look at how men will fight to the death for their freedom to choose. And that the way to punish a man, the most severe form of punishment you can give a man is to take away his choices by putting him in solitary confinement. God knows that choice is a good thing. But with that choice, we have made a lot of bad choices. And our wrong choices is what has brought evil into the world. You look around at almost all the evil that you see, almost all the suffering is directly related to people's wrong choices. Somewhere it's related to greed. People starving of famine. Is there enough food on this planet to feed everybody? Absolutely. The problem is in the human mismanagement, human error. Uh, even the extreme examples, people who, who die in tsunamis, even that, most of those deaths could be avoided by humans being more wise about where they live and how they manage the earth. The vast majority of evil in this world is directly related to our wrong choice. What about natural evils such as cancer? This is where I really don't have an answer. But it's also where I need to choose, is this really an issue worthy of walking away from God? And if I walk away from God, does that fix anything? I really believe that God is sovereign over natural disasters and things like cancer, and that God uses, God has a use for evil. God has a use for suffering. We don't understand that because we're very limited, but that doesn't stop God. We have got a golden retriever who Terrific dog named Tirza, but she is an absolute dumbbell when it comes to porcupines and quills. We have had to pull quills out of her so many times. One morning I looked out there and it looked like she had this big white ball. And then I realized we don't have a big white ball. And it was her nose and mouth covered in porcupine quills. Now, think about this from her perspective. Here she's in so much pain and what does her master do? I didn't shoot her. I, that would have been the easy way out, to just say, you've messed up, I'm just going to eradicate all the evil and away with you. But I loved her, so what did I have to do? 
I had to put her through more pain. We had to, I don't know if we had to tie her up that time, but we've had other dogs. We had to tie up, sit on, make her bleed, pull, yeah, pull those quills out, and she's yelping in pain. And from her perspective, she's, something's terrible is happening to her, and I'm inflicting more needless pain on her, and she doesn't understand why. But I know that if I do not pull those quills from her, she could die of an infection, that life is going to be absolutely miserable for her. So even though I know she doesn't comprehend what I'm doing, I still persist in helping her out. Even though it's very hard for her, it's hard for us, because I know it's what she needs. And I thank God in the same way. When you think of the intelligence, the, the difference in the level of intelligence between a human and a golden retriever, and then like that, and the difference between our intelligence level and the intelligence level of God, it's infinitely more. So it makes sense. I can see how if I have to do things the dog doesn't understand for the dog's own well-being, even though the dog can't think of any logical good reason for why I'm doing what I'm doing, I'll still do it. And God in the same way is going to put us through some difficult things because he knows what's best for us. Even though we don't get it, he knows what's best for us. One thing that God knows that we do not fully remember because of Satan's lies is that the most important thing in the world is to have a connection with God, is to have a relationship with Him. And so God, even though it's painful, will put us through difficulty to make it easier for us to turn from God. And you know, the, I really think the, the worst tragedy that happens to a person is not someone who faces adversity and pain and learns to appreciate life or learns to call on God. I think one of the worst tragedies that happens to a person is someone who gets everything they want, who has everything they could get their hands on, money, power, fame. Ravi Zacharias said that meaninglessness is not in being weary of pain, it's being weary of pleasure. And you look at the world where People, Hollywood, where people have the money, the looks, the sex, whatever they want, whatever they can get their hands on. And they're some of the most depressed, unhappy people in the world who are always needing to see therapists. Yes, I know there's the exception. I'm not trying to just paint everybody with a broad brush. But there's enough cases like that to prove my point. And enough cases of suicide where they're so empty. God knows all these things, and he takes these into equations, into his equation, and he sees that it is better for us to face some adversity and need him, and I mean, that shows us our need from him, for him, than to just let us have everything we want and become so depressed, because it really does become a hell on earth. There's two different kinds of suffering. There's internal suffering, and there's external suffering. And sometimes people who go through the external suffering have so much more peace and joy. And sometimes people who go through hardly any external suffering have a hell going on inside. And that's because they're empty. It's because they don't have God. Life is so pointless and meaningless. So God knows it's much better to subject his creatures lovingly through some external suffering so that they can really find him and hunger for him and see their need for him. Why doesn't God tell us why there's tsunamis 
and cancer and earthquakes. I think there's two reasons. The first one is we wouldn't get it. We wouldn't be able to understand it. I mean, I explained to, to Tirza why I pulled the quills. And I think after dozens of times, I think she's finally starting to get it. <laughs> but near the beginning, and I've, there's dogs that don't get it, trying to explain it to them, they don't understand. When my wife lost her sister Katrina to suicide, I said, why God? But if God had just said, here's why, first of all, they may not have been able to understand, but then they may not have also agreed with God's purposes. They may not have agreed that the good he was bringing out of this was, was worth the pain that they were going through. But God is God, and we need to surrender to him, and we need to let God be God, because he really does know what he's doing. God didn't give them a, an answer why, but this is so, the other reason God gives us, doesn't give us an answer. Because he, it's what we, he gives us something so much better than a mental answer. He actually gives us soothing to our pain. He gives us something that's satisfied. Heidi looks back at that week as one of the worst, the week after Katrina died, as one of the worst weeks in her life, but also one of the best. Because God was so real to their family that week. They were so floored and overwhelmed by God's goodness. And when you can taste God's goodness, Heidi also said that she read a quote that she's seen in her life that that adversity, that pain, has carved out a greater capacity to really enjoy God. That we get so filled up with self-centeredness and envy and greed and discontent that we can't really have the capacity to enjoy God the way we should. But when he carves that out, as painful as it is, Sometimes it allows us to really experience more of Him, and that's what is so amazing about life. That's the greatest pleasure in life. So God doesn't always give us an answer, but He does give us Himself. And that's an important lesson to remember, that when, any, when someone's asking you this question, before you get into any type of mental answer, ask some questions to evaluate, are they asking this question with their head or with their emotions? Because if they're asking with the emotions, they're going to need an emotional answer. And you can offer them Christ's love, you can offer them Christ's arms, you can offer them Christ's service. You want to meet their needs and serve them. You want to first of all show Christ's love because ultimately that is the only answer that really satisfies when someone is in pain. Finally, I just want to to really highlight that when you are, like I said in the last session, when you're wrestling with these things, question the alternative, question your perception, and in the midst of your pain, try to start giving thanks. Try to ask God to give you a more accurate perception. That is one thing, I've told you how much I've worried about losing my wife and kids and how much time I've wasted in anxiety. But some of the things that have, have helped me is to realize that God would continue to be the good God even if I had to face tomorrow without Heidi. God would continue to be there with all of his good gifts and I'd have to make the choice. Am I going to thank God and enjoy God or am I going to wallow in my misery and self-pity? And that's where it really we always have that choice. We can choose God and we can find God to be more enough and we don't have to worry because that is one thing that if we're really pursuing Him, 
seeking Him. That's one thing that will never be taken from us. But make sure, even though that can't be taken from you, make sure that you do not walk away from that, that relationship with God. The only thing that satisfies by a series of wrong choices or bitterness or lust or ingratitude because that is really the only thing that satisfies. Any questions from that before I move on? Okay, the third objection is that Jesus is simply a legendary figure shrouded in myth. It's uh, pretty pathetic when you do an internet search, the misinformation out there about Christ. And the people who do their research about whether Christ was a historical figure or not, just, <laughs> there are so many absolute lies out there about the historical information we have for Christ. This really, I, I don't know if you guys have already had your apologetics class or if it's still coming up, but I'm, I'm sure this will be covered. So I don't want to get into too much depth, but I, I do just want to highlight a, a few things as far as strategy. So once you have this in depth, at least you have some, some strategy. And you won't have time often to get into conversation with this, but just one thing I find, come at Christ as a historical figure. Come at the New Testament documents to your skeptic from the presupposition, these are historical documents, let's examine them like we'd examine any other historical document. Don't, you don't need to say, I believe that the Gospels are God's word because I have a blind presupposition that the Bible is God's word. That's just going to come across as circular reasoning. It's not a belief in inerrancy that saves us. Inerrancy is a very important belief. It's a belief in Christ Jesus that saves us. And people can encounter the living Christ who will save them, not just by, believe, by first believing in the Bible as the inerrant word of God, but they can look at it just as a historical document and treat it to the same test that it would, they would treat any other historical document. And if you do that, you encounter Christ in a powerful way as a real person that shows he's not just a figment of our imagination, he's not just a myth. People will not be converted just by the historical Christ. They also need to see the living Christ in you. But they really do need to see that they're not in antagonism to each other, that they are working together, that what we find in history lines up with our experience. But once you take the New Testament documents as historical documents, they pass the test that historians give to ancient documents far better. There is more evidence for Christ's resurrection than there is that Julius Caesar even existed. It's just amazing. And that Historians who doubt what is in the New Testament documents, if they were to apply that same standard, they would have to, co to claim complete ignorance of almost anything that happened before 500 AD. However, if they want to say, we're very confident that Julius Caesar was a historical figure, 
that he did cross the Rubicon, that we do know who the Caesars were, that we do know this information about Plato and Aristotle, by that standard of antiquity, they would have to admit that we have complete certainty about Jesus Christ. We know that we have accurate copies of the original documents. We know that the original documents weren't written by propaganda because of the, certain, the criterion of embarrassment. They include embarrassing things that they wouldn't have included if the disciples were just writing myth. And I, I, I really hope, I mean, this needs such a more thorough treatment, and so pay attention in your apologetics class. But I just want to make the point that you, the um, historical wealth of evidence that Christ existed is overwhelming. But from a strategy standpoint, remember how I said role play was one of the most persuasive things you could do with someone? Ask the question, and I've done this with a few people, and I think it works pretty well, is ask them just to consider, for the sake of argument, if it's possible that Christ, I mean that God, could become a man. Say that God wanted to reveal himself to us, and so he becomes one of us. Paul Harvey tells a story, at least he used to tell it while he was alive, maybe he still tells it, of a man who was, it was, he saw a bunch of sparrows outside the barn, a very sensitive farmer, and he wanted to get the sparrows into the barn where it was going to be warm because he knew that there was deathly cold temperatures coming and he wanted to get them in the barn. But as soon as he went out there, he kept scaring the sparrows away. And he'd go, man, if only I could become a sparrow, then I could lead them into the barn. And at that moment, he understood why God became a man. Because if God just came in his unmasked glory, we would tremble and run. But God, among many other reasons, became a man so that he could be approachable, so that, to make it easier for us to understand him. So you could tell that story to someone. Just get them to think, you know, the vast majority of people believe there's some kind of a God. Even though we, we watch secular atheistic movies and sec atheistic newspapers, the vast majority of people believe there's some kind of God. And so rather than just right away arguing for Christ's divinity, just get them to consider the idea that if God became a man, you could give, tell a story as a reason, what would this God-man look like? Just get them to ponder that question. If God became a man, what would this God-man look like? I mean, you think maybe he'd have power over nature. God's the moral lawgiver, so he'd probably live a, a morally perfect life. I, he'd probably have a huge impact on people. People would sense something different about him. Okay, let's look at history. Is there anybody in history who fits that bill? There's only one person who fits that bill. You know, Jesus is, Christ is in a category all his own. There's four types of people in this world. There's ordinary people who do not have great moral character or philosophical insight into life who do not claim to be God. That's the biggest category of people in the world. There are people who claim to be God but don't have moral insight into life because they are deluded. People who have 
people in this category are, have a divinity complex. We can see, we feel uncomfortable in them because they don't have any new insight into life. They're pitiful specimens of humanity. There's another category of people who, <clears throat> you know, it is so frustrating to have mind blanks when you're teaching a class. So I might only give you three categories. <laughs> so let's see if we can work this out. First category, people who are ordinary, who don't claim to be God, people who claim to be God and ordinary don't have insight. And then there's the people who who claim to be God, no, I don't know what the other category is. People who don't claim to be God, but have great moral insight into life. Uh, very few people like this, but someone like Moses or Solomon, or some people would say Confucius, people who have great insight into life, who are a prophet, a very respectable person that we look up to. But these people are adamant that they're not God. And to treat them like that, in fact, one of the chief characteristics of these great people who have such insight into life and such uh, live morally superior lives to us is they are marked by great humility and adamant denials that there would be God. But there's a fourth category of people, and there's only one person in this category. It's people who show great insight into life, moral perfection, and claim to be God. There's only been one person in the, that, this was a convoluted way of breaking this down for you guys, I apologize. But there's only been one person in that category, and that was Jesus Christ. Only one person has claimed to be God, claimed to be one with God, and also had the life to back it up. You know, nobody felt uncomfortable around Christ for feeling superior to him. People felt one of three things, adoration, or terror, or hatred. He was so, they sent something so strong in him. He lived a sinless life. There's something so remarkable about the person of Jesus Christ that you would have this insight. I mean, and when you're apologetics class, you have to deal with the question, did Jesus really claim to be God, or is this a claim put into his mouth by the Catholic Church? And then there's lots of evidence that he actually made similar claims claiming to decide people's eternal destiny, uh, adding new commandments when it said only God could was the lawgiver, uh, forgiving people, other people of their sins, claiming to be God. I mean, it's one thing for you to come punch me and say, I forgive you. If you punch him and I say, I forgive you, there's something wrong with me because that wasn't a sin against me. But all sin is against God, so that was a, a very specific claim to deity to be able to forgive other people's sins. But like I said before, too, that the impact, you can tell people, don't you think if this God became a man that we wouldn't miss it, that it would have a pretty dramatic impact on history? And I think he has. Jesus Christ has made a tremendous impact on history. Um, resurrection evidences, I won't even start that, but that's definitely something to ask them. Ask them for their their explanation for the resurrection. Lots of people uh, have really become Christians setting out to disprove the resurrection and being so overwhelmed by the evidence that it converted them. Okay, 
The Bible is God's word. It's full of contradictions. Ask for the contradictions. Don't let them get away with just saying it. Ask about the contradictions. Uh, it is very difficult in today's internet age to really defend the Bible because they have developed pretty strong attacks, especially about the difficult things we see. And like the whole God commanding genocide and slavery thing, that's something you will hear a lot of. And you need to, to break it down to be able to give an answer for that. You can try the same approach too. What if God did write a book? What would that look like? I give a whole hour-long talk. I'm just, you can write these down, seven evidences to keep in your pocket, or to take out of your pocket. Seven evidences. You can all use it on one hand, seven points. First one. Like I say, I don't have time to fill in the blanks on these, but you can write these down and then do your own research, or this will be a way to classify what you get in the apologetics class. But the, the pinky is the prophecy. There's an amazing ability to foretell the future accurately. If God wrote a book, I think that would be one characteristic that it would have. Uh, the ring finger, <laughs> unity. Uh, even though it was written by almost 40 authors over a course of 1,300 years in three different languages, three different continents, complete internal harmony, and it's completely consistent in its view of who God is. Uh, pretty, that's another characteristic it would have. Uh, the big finger, wave, make sure you don't just wave just this one finger at the skeptic, wave the rest of them. Uh, the big finger talks about the big questions. The Bible deals with the big issues we deal with in a way that lines up with reality. So it's an owner's manual that works. If you get a, the brand new iPod Touch, which is really sweet for Christmas, and you have, there's two instructions manuals in there. The first one says, always wear safety goggles, do not wear loose clothing, beware of the sharp edges. You're going to doubt whether this is really the owner's manual because you look at the iPod, you look at the owner's manual, it's not lining up. If you, you, you find that there's another owner's manual in there that gives a complete description of what the iPod looks like. Okay, that, that matches. It says, if you do this, this will happen. So you try it. Yep that happens. If you do this, this will happen. So forth. Ah, this is the right owner's manual. It's exactly what we have with God's Word. What, the insight into life that it gives us has been borne out in people's experience time and time again. In, what, in contrast to some of the Hindu scriptures, for example, that talk about evil being illusion, that doesn't seem to line up with our experience. Or the Muslim scriptures paint a God that doesn't really line up with our experience. Uh, the Book of Mormon talks about history and tells us things that also don't line up with our experience. The Bible has insight into life that you would fully expect if God was the author of it. So prophecy, unity, the big questions, index finger. It's an index to history. It's completely recorded history accurately, unlike the other books that have claimed to be written by God. Um, the thumb, it's life-changing. You know, remember the Gladiator movies? Uh, this meant you live. This meant 
you die. Life-changing. I read a great story about a man who uh, met a missionary, I think it was in India, and the man was giving out Bibles, and so he thought, that's the perfect length and width. Each one of those pages would be perfect to roll up my, my drugs, and I could smoke them. So he wanted the Bible to smoke, and the missionary said, okay, I'll give it to you on the condition that you read every page before you smoke it. <laughs> so this man smoked his way through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when he got to John, he was so convicted by the story, that so amazed with this person of Christ, that he became a Christian. And he tracked down that man years later. The Bible has a raw power to change people. There's something supernatural about it. Something you'd also expect if the Bible was written by God. Fist, it's had an amazing amount of <laughs> persecution, adversity, but it's continued to survive. The Bible is a fighter. Voltaire, the French deist who said, the Bible will be eradicated in my lifetime. Well, Voltaire died and 50 years after he died, a Bible printing press bought his house and used his house. <laughs> to print Bibles. God's word will endure forever. Finally, the historical evidence is that God did become a man, and there's only one book that has the full endorsement of Jesus Christ, and that's the Bible. So those are seven evidences. I, these were just to, to classify. You're going to need to do more research to fill them in, but what was this? Prophecy. Prophecy. It, it points to Christ. Christ is the only one who endorsed it. Okay. We looked at the ob objections to hell. Uh, what about those who've never heard? We just touched on it yesterday. I can give you, I'm going to step aside as my role of official teacher for a while. <laughs> and just tell you what I think, but with the full disclaimer that I could be wrong, and this is, I think, some possibilities. I do believe that it's only Jesus Christ who can save any person. Nobody is saved apart from the cross of Christ. However, we have Old Testament saints who were saved without an explicit knowledge of Jesus Christ. Christ's blood was applied to people before the cross. So, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I do believe there's a possibility. Well, God can do whatever he wants. But I think it's possible that other people could be saved by Christ's blood by responding to the light that they have. There's some other verses that give me hope. Once again, this is just speculation. This should never prevent you from doing missions. This isn't but the, the point is that John says that Jesus Christ is the light who gives light to every man who comes into the world. Uh, God is clearly known by the things he's made. And I do believe that, Paul, and Paul says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I do believe that whoever is responding to the light that is given them 
God will give them more light because Jesus said that whoever seeks will find. It's Christ's promise that people who seek will find. I do believe it's possible that the Holy Spirit is not bound simply by missionaries and that the Holy Spirit can be drawing people. I don't have an optimistic view of people who haven't heard the gospel because we do need the gospel to soften us. And I don't have an optimistic view of the pagan people as someone who are all seeking for God. I um, do know that we can trust God to do what is right. That we should have a passion for the lost people and want to reach them because Paul also says, and this is how can they be saved without first hearing? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? So while there is some scriptural evidence that it's possible that people will be saved who have not heard the gospel, there's also some scriptural evidence that people who have not heard will not be saved. And that's where I'm so glad it's not me making the decision, but I do know for sure that the way God treats each person will be beyond fair, and that nobody will complain about the way God has treated anybody. Don't, don't let that get in your way, in, uh, in the way of your view of God's character, because you just think God was unfair. So hopefully I didn't teach any heresy there. That's just some ideas. Uh, you really do need to wrestle with these. And I know a lot of theologians are very divided on this issue. I know there would be some theologians who would definitely have me run out of the room by even speculating the, the possibilities of it. But again, you're accountable to God for what you believe, and I do believe that God is far more gracious and more good, and he's going to treat humanity far more graciously than we could even hope for. That I do know because of his character. It's narrow-minded and arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way. First of all, we need to remember that people are, people choose hell because they've rejected God, not because God put in this catch that they missed. Uh, Jesus is the only way because Jesus is God, and that only God can satisfy us. Only God can make us truly happy. We are created for a relationship with God and nothing else will satisfy. So to reject God is to reject the very reason for we were made. It's to reject the source of life, goodness, hope, and beauty. And to reject Jesus is to reject God because that Jesus is God in the flesh. Um, one more. The church is full of hypocrites. So much evil has been done by Christians. This is one, a smokescreen, I think, that a lot of people have, saying that I can't become a Christian because you Christians are so full of hypocrites. Yes, we're hypocrites. The problem is not Jesus Christ. The problem is sin nature. The problem is that we're in rebellion to God. A couple of things to help this person see. Just because something's done in the name of Christ does not mean it has Christ's authorization. If you're talking to a believer, say his name's Bob. Say, what, how would you feel if I went and shot a bunch of kids at a school and I made it very clear I was doing this in the name of Bob? Should you, Bob, be held responsible for my wrong choices? Hopefully he should say, no, that's not fair. It was your wrong choice. 
Well, should Jesus Christ be held responsible for our wrong choices? I don't think so. Jesus is not the problem. God is not the problem. As much as Christopher Hitchens wants to say it's religion that poisons everything. What happens when you remove that relationship, that God-fearingness, that God-awareness, you get far more destruction, mass destruction, far more inhumanity and per perversion and corruption than where Christ's gospel has come. Have Christians done things wrong in Christ's name? Absolutely. But if you look at the areas where Christianity has gone, Christianity has been responsible for better health care, for education, for the elevation in the status of women, for human dignity, for the removal of slavery. These are what has happened when people have really applied Christ's gospel. Jesus Christ and God, they're not the problem. Human sin is the problem. Christ is the only solution to our problem. It doesn't help anything to get rid of God because the problem is us. The problem is not God. Okay. Well, tonight we're going to, um, I'm going to try to teach you a, a fun new way to memorize scripture. Some of you may laugh at me. That's okay. I'm used to being laughed at. But let me tell you that this will, if you really apply it, will revolutionize your ability to memorize scripture. And that is a wonderful thing. <laughs>